of Greetings, Friends. It's Thursday, January 25th, and Chapo is back at it once again. Um, joining us this week, we have the returning champion, the, the king of all guests, to take us through the wide world of war, once again, from foreign exchanges, from American prestige, the king, the king of all media, the king of all Chapo guests, the foreign affairs guy. It's Derek Davison back once again. Hey, guys. I'm always happy to come around when it looks like we're on the brink of world war three so are you uh, ready to derek <laughs> i think uh, i think i've got this beat nailed down the the apocalypse yeah. beat is uh, is squarely in my corner derek the chances of world war three happening are always non-zero as they say in oppenheimer but you know now perhaps maybe slightly more than non-zero and we're gonna we're gonna get into that but I, i'd like to begin today obviously um, with the ongoing uh, carnage in Gaza. And I, I want to begin with, with something that happened uh, a couple days ago that I think um, it reflects something that like we, we spoke about the last time you we were on the show, which like deals with sort of the, how should I put this, the, uh, the grade inflation going on in the Israeli military and their complete lack of discipline. I'm referring, of course, to what is being touted as the deadliest day in this war so far, if you only count Israelis, uh, this was an incident that, that as was, we uh, should, you should only yeah. count Israeli deaths because, frankly, you know that's the only ones that matter. Yeah, the deadliest day of this war since October seventh uh, was caused by an incident in which something like twenty or twenty-one Israeli colonels, generals, and majors, ages nineteen <laughs> to twenty. Yeah, that was a fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So basically, so like, how? So, yeah, yeah. Felix, you describe what happened here. The best I can describe this is they were hanging out in a house made entirely out of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like Will alluded to this, but okay. In one tweet from like a Hezbarist, I saw him refer to a 26 year old uh, major general which I want that to be true, but I figure that might be a misprint. But then I, I saw probably, a more, yeah. I saw a more official thing, like something from like an actual newspaper alluding to a 32 year old major general. So I don't like <laughs> these both could be errors, but like maybe not knowing what we know. I mean, there, we, <laughs> There was a 21-year-old captain. I think there could easily be a 32-year-old major general, right? I, 32 is within the realm of possibility. I think the, the post, I mean, I saw the same post and it had like four major generals and like three colonels and, uh, you know, a major. There was like one NCO in, in the entire 21 people uh, who were killed in this incident. And I thought, well, that's a little bit, bit, bit of a high-ranking delegation to send to blow up a house. Well, yeah, Derek, uh, and I, I do point. think that they were I do think that, that it was mistaken. But the real ranks, the actual ranks, from what I understand, are are almost as absurd. I mean, it's a bunch of like 20 year old captains and majors. Like, like, how do you how does that happen? It's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, like a, a, a major a major is like a very serious administrative position, not even to mention like what you would presumably have to do if you were a major deployed in battle, you know, it, you are in charge of so many people and so many things. And I think about like any 22 year old doing that job, 
And it's just like horrifying. It's okay. horrifying. Well, Felix, I mean, that's a good point. Like in, in most militaries, if you reach the rank of major, you're like responsible for probably thousands of people. You make huge decisions and it's mostly like an administrative role. In the Israeli military, the major generals are, as you said, Felix, basically personally setting up mines in a house filled with dynamite. I mean, like basically what happened is that they were, according to the, according to like Israeli military sources, they were engaged in an operation to basically raise residential neighborhoods within a X amount of miles of the security fence or the so-called security fence, I should say. Um, and basically it was like a, a Looney Tunes style uh, uh, military operation because like it's like it's like when Bugs Bunny creates a sexy lady out of only dynamite and then like Kathy smooches her and it blows up in his face. <laughs> they were in a house filled with mines, 20 of them, and the resistance forces um, basically shot a grenade in there and blew up the entire building and killed all of them. Yeah, it's I mean, it's not even clear that the the militants would have known that they were, I mean, I, they fired an RPG at them because it was an inviting target, but I don't think they could have known that they had wired the house up to, to but, blow up and that they were going to set off this chain reaction of explosives. For Yeah, like, and, and we, we've seen a lot of examples over the last couple of weeks of these controlled demolitions of like major parts of the civilian infrastructure in Gaza. We saw them detonate a university, just like, you know, not bombing it from the air under some sort of conceivable idea that there's a military operation going on. This is just like everything's been cleared out of it and they plant charges throughout the entire building and just reduce it to rubble. Okay, here's my question. I, I've seen on TikTok just two weeks ago them doing TikTok dances with these mines. Here's my question to Derek and Felix. What is the likelihood that these 20 generals were recording a TikTok video when that building got blown up? Extremely high. <laughs> Like it, it, extremely high. I mean, I would, I would. We've seen like the kinds of TikToks they do, and it is like, like sub silent film level comedy. Like it's the sort of shit where they'll like they'll take a, a a part of a door from a house they blew up and be like, "This is knock knock joke. Who's behind it? <laughs> no more house." <laughs> And Did you it, see the it's one? It's just like subverbal. It's, like it's caveman. astonishing. It's astonishing the stuff that they they film themselves doing. Like you have people like going through like women's bedrooms and like sniffing yeah, I, their underwear. I was and, like, just going to bring that, that one up on TikTok. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Well, what, I mean, like, the, why would you want anybody to know that you're doing this? I mean, like, it's it's astonishing. Like, I mean, talk about like I, I just I didn't know that militaries in ongoing like war operations let their like enlisted men and officers just post on social media constantly especially when the videos being posted by occupation soldiers in this operation are like the best evidence possible that what they're doing constitutes a war crime derek you brought up the video of the one i saw like weeks ago but it was a british guy born in london who had come back to fight um, uh, in, 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 in like invade Gaza essentially? And he's like, they're just stealing from people's houses, and he's going through an underwear drawer and picking out like lingerie, and going, "Oh, I don't know about this. Oh, something's going on with this. Something, I'm not having none of that, love." And it's just sort of like they're like underwear in people's houses. How can you believe this? Yeah, and like, scandalous. and then there's just stuff oh of them God. just stealing from just. Or like you know, uh, laughing about blowing up schools and stuff, just literally looting. See, I mean, houses. looting, literally looting shops. I mean, like breaking cla breaking glass cases and taking stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess like I just, I, I, is there any precedent for an army that's engaged in like an armed conflict to like have this kind of social media policy? I mean, I know American troops are like posting when 
from Iraq and Afghanistan, but that was usually when they were like back at the base and they were like, I don't know, like talking about, I don't know, like what they're doing in their off time or something like that. It, it is incredible that they're doing this and that, that nobody's reined them in. I mean, if, if not for the, the image of it and the fact that you really don't want to broadcast the callousness of this operation and just the extent of the, the depravity to the world. If, if not for that, then because it's really fucking stupid to do this shit in a war zone when you can be, you can be fired on at any minute. Um, much like it's really stupid to wire buildings to blow up. If you don't clearly don't have the areas secured. Like, I don't know what they're doing. I just don't know the the thinking behind it. Yes. I, I will say there is a precedent actually for, uh, you know, at least one side I know of in an armed conflict that posted this much and posted so much evidence of, you know, their own violations of international law and uh, established law and war crimes. It would be ISIS. Yeah. Like that is literally the only group. And they also, ISIS also did do the very stupid thing of, you know, broadcasting their position. And uh, just sort of haphazardly posting their way through a war, presumably for no other reason uh, than, I guess, the reason anyone else posts. So people would think <laughs> I mean, it's cool. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, well, I mean, I mean, and they would put together I, videos. Yeah. Yeah. If I was in if I was in a war zone, though, I think probably like a very likely way I would die is getting domed by a sniper while I was trying to look at pictures of myself as either black or Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, I mean, it, it does speak to the, like, just level, I, I don't know, maybe there's just, like, a, a level of impunity. Like, you see these Hasbarist accounts on Twitter who post these compilation videos of, like, Israeli, and I guess they're trying to to counter the the videos that Hamas has posted of, like, attacks on Israeli positions. But these are just like, hey, look, we blew up a building. Look, we blew up a school. Look, we blew up. Here's a guy shooting at a door or, like, at an open window with nobody there. And it's just like, what, you know, what is the the point here except to, uh, in some, in many of these cases, to just announce to the world that, like, hey, we're, like, we're doing war crimes. I mean, we are doing war crimes. The The blowing up these houses, they admitted essentially to doing war crimes in the past when they've wired these buildings up they they try to justify it by saying oh you know there was like a tunnel underneath which they can say for uh, anything or you know this was a, a hamas secret hamas headquarters or whatever but in this case they were open about the fact that like hey yeah we're blowing these buildings up because we want to create a buffer zone which is a violation of international law it violates one of the biden administration's alleged red lines about this operation, which was no reduction in the territory of Gaza after the war, a la the creation of a, a buffer zone. Um, it's it's just crazy to me that they're they're doing this so openly. And then, of course, you have a lot of these just these videos and the, the buildings that they've been destroying are, as you said, will things like uh, universities, uh, halls of government, places where records are kept. It's it's just an obvious. Also, some of the oldest kind of mosques and churches on the snuff planet. Out. Yeah, old, absolutely. Yeah, just to snuff out the culture and the history of the place uh, along with the people. Another thing that ISIS would do: recording yeah. themselves, destroying yeah, you know timeless the cemeteries, the violation of cemeteries. Yeah, yeah. I, looting I of do, artifacts. Yeah. I, I I do think that Derek's right that a lot of these videos. Not necessarily like the 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 dances and stuff, but more like um, 
you know, the stuff you see where they're blowing up like houses that have already been blown up or like those hysterical videos where they're pre-firing at empty rooms. Uh, yeah. I think that's absolutely a hasty response to the Kassam Brigade's videos. Like, I got to say, I would have never get like a year ago, I would have never guessed that those would become like a sensation that everyone loved the the videos from the Kassam Brigades with the red triangle. But they're huge. They're huge because like the stuff that those guys do in those videos is like insane. We've talked about it a million times, but it's like objectively like very brave and singular acts. But on the Israeli side, it's like an it is a case of like believing your own propaganda too much. They don't believe that like Palestinians are capable of like improvising tactics in a smart way or bravery or anything. So they think that people like these Kassam videos just because like, I don't know, they're blowing stuff up and, yeah. and Palestinians are savages. So they're like, all right, we'll we'll just release videos where we're where, where we're doing bad stuff while we're doing explosions to your to your point it's like the contrast in those videos because like leaving uh moral and political considerations aside about like you know whether you like what they're doing or think it's justified the Kassam brigade videos genuinely portray like acts of courage in the context of an armed conflict between two you know armed opponents trying to kill each other right compare that to like a Derek and felix have you seen i think like the single most insane video to come out of the idf in in this slaughter did you see the video of the guy dressed in what was what kind of in a velociraptor costume the kind that you usually see at like nba games or like tailgate parties oh, he was dressed God. as a velociraptor frantically loading shells into like a mortar shell. yeah i did see yeah that. I, I just i, I mean mortar, I, I, that was one that i i like i saw it as I was scrolling through and I was like, you know what? I just, I don't want to know what's going on there. I'm going to move on with my life. Like, why should I waste my beautiful mind on this? That was really, really bad. That was like, talk about like elder millennial cringe. And the, <laughs> yeah. the fact that the fact that we know that the soldier who dressed up like a dinosaur is an elder millennial, that he was probably born in like 83 or 84 that's probably the field marshal of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> like going he's, what we know. He's running the whole operation. He's the Dwight yeah. Eisenhower of, yeah. this, of, 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 of this of this military operation. Yeah. It, and yeah, like, if he's if he's over 40, he's a rank that like only exists in the Halo games. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's, he's like the space marshal of Israel. Well, I mean, like I think the point I want to like underscore about the like the the like the occupation the occupation army and then they're like the, what they're advertising to the world is just like even if the videos even if you want to quibble about like oh they're not actually just showing them executing civilians or whatever but what it does what it does advertise to the world is their absolutely sadistic glee in fighting this war like this is not a portrayal of a, a people who have been forced into a conflict and that they now must undertake with like a grim solemn uh, like, you know, duty to protect themselves and like uh, knowing full well the cost of war, et cetera, et cetera. No, these are dumbass like college age kids who are having a blast gleefully displaying their sadism to the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I guess like where I want to go from there is like given given the 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 incident of 20 Israeli generals home aloneing themselves in a controlled demolition. But like given that like the, 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 this the, this war is i guess ostensibly being fought we're told over and over again to 
uh, defeat Hamas and to release the, and to to free the hostages. Derek, like how now four months into this war, like how does this incident and what we're talking about here, how does this put the lie to like what is the actual military goal in Gaza? Because if it's about freeing the hostages, the only hostages that they've come into contact with are the ones they've shot. Yeah, I mean, they've killed, I think, more hostages than they've freed through military action. The only time that any significant number of hostages were freed was during the ceasefire in November. Uh, And I know there's there's negotiations going on about potentially uh, a new ceasefire. But, um, you know, the idea that that Netanyahu keeps pushing that it's only through military action that we can recover. I mean, it's obviously false you're 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 killing them and you're you're also continuing to deprive gaza of things like food that hey you know the hostages need too and not i'm not that i'm saying that they're necessarily going to get their fair share of any food that comes in but you know the the humanitarian situation also makes it harder to to envision rescuing these people alive what they're doing now i mean you know again uh, as I said earlier, to blowing up these buildings and just openly admitting that, like, hey, we're doing this because uh, of something that's in the post-war planning, in in the post-war design of what Gaza is going to look like, assuming that there's any Gaza left, uh, which is the creation of this security barrier some distance in from the uh, the fence, is yeah, I mean, it 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 speaks to just a a level i think of cynicism because they're talking to the biden administration they're trying to assure the biden administration that hey we're uh, you know we're on board with this we want to you know we want to post-war uh i mean they're arguing about whether the palestinian authority can come in and and control it uh but you know they're they're trying to assure they they, you know that they're not going to do ethnic cleansing they're not going to cut the terror the the uh, territories, actual physical space down, but they're doing these things that are obviously geared toward both toward cleansing, at least part of the Gaza strip and taking at least some portion of its territory. Uh, if not the entirety, I mean, I think still, if you, uh, polled Israeli leadership, the ideal solution would be, which they were pushing a few weeks ago, uh, the quote unquote voluntary relocation uh, of that population to, to other parts of the world and just taking the entire uh, area and either leaving it desolate as a message or, you know, you turn it into luxury condos or something. Along those lines, uh, Derek and Felix, I'm wondering if you've noticed um, a similar rhetorical tact, uh, a sort of shift that I've noticed over the last month or couple of weeks or so. Whereas like in the, in the back in 2023, you know, a billion years ago, um, you know, any criticism of the war was couched in terms that like this is about releasing the, this is about releasing the hostages. We need to free the hostages. Like the hostages come first. But I think like everybody knows that like that is not the goal of this war, that they have no, in, I mean, they have like, if, if they, if they free a hostage, like that's incidental. But like, I've noticed that like when you bring up, like for instance, uh, the British TV network, ITV just captured on the, on the, not Al Jazeera, but the British news network captured a man waving a white flag being shot by an Israeli sniper like on camera. As he moved forwards towards the combat zone, he noticed this group of men doing their utmost to appear non-threatening, trying to proceed with care. They wanted to reach two other family members and get them out of harm's way. The interview complete, our cameraman walked away. And then this happened. 
the interviewee had been shot and fatally wounded. And when you bring up examples like that, I think like a lot of the, you know, at least in the replies, as you see on social media, the tact has changed from just saying, sounds like Hamas should release the hostages. I was just saying, oh, you want this to stop? Hamas should release the hostages. But that's just conceding the fact that like they're still holding the hostages because the only ones that have been freed are the ones they've voluntarily given up during negotiation. And it's also like Hamas should free the hostages. Wasn't that the Israeli military's whole fucking goal in this? They haven't freed anyone. They've only killed it, tens of thousands of people. Well, that's the thing. It concedes at, at at best, like the best interpretation, the best case interpretation of that is that you're con- is you're conceding that the Israeli military is killing thousands upon thousands of people to punish Hamas for taking these hostages, uh, which, you know, again, I mean, I don't want to harp on quaint notions like international law, but you're not allowed to do that. That's not, uh, that's not legal. That's not, uh, something that is permitted uh, under the rules of what, what the Biden administration keeps calling the rules based order. Uh, you're just not supposed to do that. It's collective punishment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, this, if this is the defense, if this is the, the best defense that you can mount or justification for what's going on, even that doesn't clear the bar. Uh, to making it right. And uh, before we move on to, to other uh, other regions of the world, as long as we're on the topic of uh, cynical and depraved displays, did Derek Felix, did you catch this week Elon Musk and Ben Shapiro doing a PR tour to Auschwitz? I mean, folks, Ben Shapiro and Elon Musk at Auschwitz, the jokes write themselves. But, you know... I can't believe I picked that over $2 million. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really fucked up and I didn't even learn any business secrets. But uh, it's just like, I, I saw a, a little bit here on that. It's just like the fact that like they literally, I mean, I, all I could think about this was uh, during reading this story was a friend of the show, Jerry Stahl and his book about visiting concentration camps on, on a Torah group. But like the fact that like they literally walked out of the gas chambers to do a PR pitch about how if, if X had been around during the Holocaust, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah the that truth was out god. faster that was i just so that fucking was, offensive oh it was yeah. uh, and the funny thing about it is that ben shapiro when he kept interviewing him he, he kept talking about how tweets could have saved lives during the holocaust and musk had to keep correcting him by saying posts on the x platform <laughs> i didn't see that <laughs> i that's amazing I, I can't imagine like anything worse than if x was around during the holocaust <laughs> it would be Jesus. it would like just so many po- like so many posts where it's like the best case the absolute best case scenario is one of those posts where it's like it's in all caps and they're repeating the same thing over and over again like sean McElwee. they're killing jews they're killing jews at auschwitz they're killing jews at auschwitz they're killing jews at auschwitz 30,000 retweets then the you scroll down and it's posting that uh, the the ad for the vibrator <laughs> that every viral tweet has. Or imagine like you know getting community noted. You're like, uh, yeah, the Nazis are doing genocide. They're doing Holocaust, and then you get like a community note. Well, actually, yeah, that would be that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, as you'll see from the as you'll see from the, this zone of interest. There's clearly a swimming pool. This so-called death camp. <laughs> No, and then yeah. like, but like, and then people pointed out that like an hour after doing this phony display, Elon was back to the great the doing posts on the X platform where like he replies to like a Charlie Kirk post that's like, arm yourself to defeat the immigrant cockroaches poisoning our nation. And he just replies, wow, interesting. 
<laughs> yeah, looking I into would, this. I will. I, okay. <laughs> I will say that, like, I don't think it would have. I think they're going a little far by saying posts on the X platform would uh, prevent the Holocaust. But I think if Linda was around during the Holocaust, it would be sort of like <laughs> yeah. a, a a life a life is beautiful type thing. <laughs> I would love to, I would love to see I would love to see a movie where like she's she plays the Roberta Bellini role, like she's yeah. in the camp with 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 her her son, and they're like they're serving that like thin broth that they gave to like. Uh, people kept in the camps and she's like soup yummy wow and like (laughs) draws the soup emoji how many of my fellow inmates how many of my fellow inmates at belson like hashtag sports (laughs) yeah they're they're marching people up to the showers and she's like showers are a quick and hot way to get clean (laughs) i mean they could never break her yeah uh, now I just want to read a little bit from the uh, the New York Times article about about this this little uh, summer camp trip that uh, Elon Musk took. But it says here, pushing back against accusations of anti-Semitism, Elon Musk has in recent months visited Israel, hosted Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at a Tesla factory in California, and repeatedly insisted he bears no animus towards Jews. On Monday, he took his penitence, penitence tour to a new level, declaring himself aspirationally Jewish after a visit to the former Nazi death camp Auschwitz in southern Poland. Uh, he says, two-thirds of my friends are Jewish, he said. I'm Jewish by association, aspirationally Jewish. Elon, that's my shit. Aspirationally Jewish. Okay. He's horning in on my act once again. But, I mean, God, what... <laughs> I, I just, I love, I love Elon Amazing. studying the Holocaust and just being like, like, hmm, like, like, like they, so they, they got to control who worked in their factories. Interesting. I hate putting things like this because it's a very like, you know, it reminds me of those like, there's no such thing as fucking unskilled labor type posts. But I mean, like, he literally did say that like Jews are hurting non-whites into America to destroy it. <laughs> he, yeah, he literally, literally yeah, he literally did that. There's like I like look, man, I there is so much that I consider to be like not anti-Semitism. I think it's I, I I really think that like the ADL and places like that have really like ruined that term. But like that is that's like as bad as anything that Kanye said. At least Kanye like has the mental illness that makes you annoying. Like he has an excuse. <laughs> Elon, Elon's like as much as he wants, like he, he, you know, as much as he wants to pretend he's like a, a based mentally ill guy, he's just like a normal stupid guy. And he, yeah, he was saying like that is Der Sturmer shit. But it's just it's just like fine. He can go to a Holocaust museum. Trips to the Holocaust Museum are, those are for, like, football players that accidentally watch a Holocaust denial video (laughs) and tweet it. No, like, that's what that is for. It's not for, like, a 60-year-old man who's, like, gone to college and, like, should know better. What what it is, it's, it's, like, the bleaker, more, like, nerdier, more debauched version of 
like Marky Mark saying that 9-11 wouldn't have yeah. happened if he'd have been on the plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if X was around the Holocaust, and I like, you know, come on. Well, I think guys. I think the ironic part about um as, as the New York Times says here, um, a video presentation before Mr. Musk took the stage in Krakow to answer questions from the right-wing commentator Ben Shapiro presented social media as a force for good that, had it existed in the 1930s, could have reduced the scale of the Holocaust by alerting Europe's Jews to Hitler's death camps and allowing them to flee before it was too late. I think of the ironic part, and then and then also he goes on to say, "Wait, is, are they are they under the impression that Jews in Europe didn't know what was happening? Like that that." X would have informed them that this was going on. That's well, you know, probably. That's I mean, like, well, in the thirties, you know, they were like, I don't know, it could could have got the word out. At a least, bit I mean, at least come at it from a, a sensible direction. Like we we were gonna, we could have called Hitler in, and, and you know, and showed him that what he was doing was wrong. You know, but this, come this on. never would have happened if this never would have happened if Lenny Riefenstahl got a Best Director nom for the Oscars in nineteen thirty eight <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, no, but then he also went on to say. Uh, um, it blew, he added that it blew my mind to see protesters at elite U.S. colleges showing support for Hamas by chanting slogans against Israel and its right to exist. At elite campuses, you're supposed to be enlightened, not sponsoring hate, he said, which is, I mean, hilarious given what we all know Twitter has become under his, his leadership. But I mean, I would, say, I would say that the irony about this in terms of like how a social media platform could alert people that there's a genocide going on is that is kind of what Twitter is doing right now in Gaza. Because like I, for all its faults, Twitter is actually like less censored when it comes to Palestinian uh, and or like you know Arab uh, media sources than like let's say Facebook and Instagram are. So I mean like it's the only problem is that they can't flee. That's the only problem. They, I mean they, we all have the information. They just can't do anything with it. Yeah, and it's I mean it's you have to wade through all the bullshit. I mean it's really hard on Twitter. The, you're right. It's less censored, but it's less censored from like every direction. So there's so much bullshit to wade through. Uh, that it just makes it useless on uh, almost. So to uh, to, to move on from uh, from Gaza and Palestine, I mean, like we do have to talk about, like obviously, like the, the related front that's now being opened up this, in this war in the Red Sea. And I want to talk about the rebranding of Operation Prosperity Guardian, which is, you know, a one-time limited airstrike uh, to deter the Houthis from attacking shipping lanes. Uh, that hasn't deterred them in the slightest. So now Operation Prosperity Guardian has become the, the now continuing to be a temporary series of limited military engagements that is in no way a war in and of itself. But we now have Poseidon Archer, to which I have to say right off the bat, who the fuck names these things? Because, I mean, like, Poseidon did not have a bow and arrow. He was not an archer, quite famously. So I, I, have, this, I have a theory about this, which is somebody, I, I saw this, I think, on Twitter somewhere. Uh, somebody proposed that they rename it to Operation Amazon Protector. Yeah. And, like, uh, and obviously they weren't going to do that, but they kept the initials. They kept the O and the P and the A. So maybe it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing uh, where it's gibberish, but if you really, you know, uh, have the the decoder ring you can figure it out uh but derek i mean we've had you on the show many times before to talk about yemen back when like the last war that they were fighting but like now it's like the um the houthis of the Ansarullah movement whatever you want to call it like they're clearly in control of the country and they are like taking it upon themselves to they're in control of the north they're, they're in control they're in, of the north well it's like where most of the country is it's like where most of the people in the country live right 
Yeah, I mean it's it's the the capital Sena. I mean Aden, the, the the main port city in the south, is uh, probably the center of gravity in that part of the country. But yeah, I mean your North Yemen is is more uh, populated, uh, at least you know in normal times when the country isn't still in a frozen civil war. But I, I guess I'm just wondering. Um Derek, like what what your what what your thoughts are on like a the sort of the creative use of military tactics to um, deter these ships, but also like their long term strategy and like and how you see this potentially uh, like reaching the containment of like you know a limited small certainly not war uh, ongoing airstrikes not approved by Congress. Sure, I I mean it's the Houthis have had this ability. I'm probably, you know, at, at least since at least for the last few years, I mean, you know, they've built up their uh, missile and, and drone capabilities, uh, but they, they're where they're positioned gives them the perfect uh, vantage point to strike ships going through the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which can kind of is the choke point at the southern end of the Red Sea. And they've had that ability for, for a long time. Uh, they haven't used it until now. And I know, you know, it's, it's, uh, there was this whole like, uh, Yemen expert thing that, that, uh, you had to, to say, I guess, when this all started that, uh, well, I don't think the Houthis are doing this because of Gaza. I think that, you know, they'll continue to do this no matter what happens in Gaza, which, okay. I mean, they didn't, they weren't doing it before Gaza and they stopped during the ceasefire. Like, I don't know what, what you're looking for. Why don't we call the bluff and do a ceasefire and see if they can give give it a shot. What reason would they have to do it if not Gaza? Like, what is it? Just like that they, uh, well, they, like it's the it's the only way they can make friends. Actually, I have an answer. To that, Felix. <laughs> they like hopping, hopping to that, onto Felix. a commercial liner. Like <laughs> they, what, they are what the attacking. Fuck? They're attacking working class seamen, and they are they're they're attacking these ships and holding them hostage to proliferate the addiction of cot among the American working class. Oh my God. I saw that when Paul, Ma- Paul Mason, Wait, that's a real thing. Seriously. No, that's that's a real thing. That's a whole, no, I just no, pulled no. that out he, of my he, ass. He, he, he didn't say the cop thing, but he said, thank you. Like here, because Keir Starmer obviously, you know, is in favor of operation Amazon prime. Uh, and he was like, good move by Keir Starmer defending the working class uh, sailors <laughs> yeah, that are Christ. being abducted by, by Yemen. It, I've seen some bad British punditry, but that's got to oh, be yeah. one of the worst I've ever seen. So, <laughs> I mean, the the argument is, I mean, it's not entirely unreasonable, is that the the Houthis, you know, they've established themselves now in, in northern Yemen. The conflict has been frozen for a couple of years now. Um, there is or going on a couple of years. There's no indication what a post-war Yemen is going to look like if there's ever a post-war Yemen or if this just remains frozen. Who knows? Uh, because peace talks are, are, you know, fits and starts. But the, the argument is that they are trying to transition from a, a militant movement to a governing force uh, that, that can, if not control northern Yemen entirely, then at least participate in some kind of political settlement. And, you know, they're not terribly popular, which I think is probably true. I, I wouldn't want to live under the Houthis. Uh, and, you know, I imagine that that given all the struggles that the people of northern Yemen have gone through, some of them not related to the Houthis, many of them related to the blockade by the Saudis and the 
the you know kind of deprivation that that's caused, but some of it may be attributable to to mismanagement or misgovernance. That their their popularity has kind of waned without the war as as the backdrop, and so they're seizing on this opportunity to demonstrate their resistance to the U.S. and this makes them popular again. Uh, it helps to bolster their position in the uh, whole uh, Iranian, you know, the quote unquote axis of resistance or whatever it's called these days. Uh, and so that's the the rationale. But, uh, you know, again, like it's still reacting to what's happening in Gaza. So if you end the slaughter in Gaza, they will probably stop. I mean, there's no evidence to suggest that they won't, except some, you know, so-called experts who've decided that that's the case. But like in terms of like their actual tactics, like I mean, I I'm astonished at the and we mentioned this before, like the sheer dollar amount and like the price that they're imposing with this economic blockade versus the investment in terms of like these how what are they using like these sort of like disposable drones like how how are they how are they impeding like are they, what threat are they using to like impede the progress of these ships? Yeah, I mean it's mostly rockets that they get in, um, you know, maybe the occasional missile that they get. Some parts, they've gotten some parts shipped from Iran, but they've developed their own ability to make these things. Uh, the drones are probably uh, off the shelf, mostly drones that they repurpose for military use. Um, they've got, you know, qu quote unquote, seaborne drones that are just like speedboats that they pack with explosives um, that they've used in the past. Not so much uh, in this operation, but they have used them, used that in the past. Um, it, it, it really is a very low cost, uh, operation and it's, it doesn't need to be terribly successful is the thing. Like they don't need to blow up a cargo ship. They just need to shoot some, to lob some missiles at, or rockets at one and scare the insurance companies into saying, okay, you can't go through here anymore. We're not going to take the risk. And everybody starts going around Africa. It's, it's not, a, a it doesn't need to be a very sophisticated operation to, to achieve its aim. Derek and Felix, did you see, I mean, I'm, this is, this is real, this is real uh, fucking Patrick Brian, Patrick O'Brien hours here. Did you see the two British warships um, smashing into each other, trying to park? In yes. Yes. <laughs> I this is this is this is, this is Captain Lord. Jack, Lucky Jack Aubrey once again. I was a, I was gonna read here. This is I gotta get the names of the ships correct because they're great. Uh, yeah, two British warships collide in uh, Middle East Harbor, damaging ships. Uh, the HMS Chiddingfold, the HMS Chiddingfold appeared to reverse into the HMS Banger as it was at a dock, according to a video posted on social media. But yeah. This is just the like HMS banger. Like, okay, guys, if you're not going to take this, <laughs> if you're not going to take this seriously, neither are we. Okay. Playtime is over. Chris, can we just queue up the yakety sax music from uh, the Benny Hill show as we talk about the HMS chilling fold and bangers? And uh, it's going to be in dry dock for a while. But I mean, Poseidon Archer, not off to a great start. I mean, as I said, the name is all fucked up. Poseidon has a trident, not a boat. Well, and actually, here's you know, other people have thing. made this point. Poseidon but aside from like the damage that that gets done to the ships from just being used, you're throwing, you're you're shooting like twenty million dollar anti aircraft missiles at you know five hundred dollar drone or a you know five thousand dollar drone, whatever. Economically, just from the cost perspective, it's ridiculous. And I mean, will you ask before what's the chances for this to to escalate and and the chance that it will escalate i mean i think it's there's a fairly good chance it will escalate because 
the airstrikes aren't going to work. They're not going to stop the Houthis from doing what they're doing. And the pressure is then going to grow to do something bigger. The, the vice president or the, the vice chairman of the Yemeni government, this sort of notional Yemeni government's presidential council, has already given interviews where he said, you know, this the airstrikes aren't going to work. But if you guys, if the United States wanted to arm and support our troops, we could send them into northern Yemen and deal with the Houthis once and for all. And that's that's going to be on the table at some point, I think. And that's how this could get uh, really ugly and, and uh, you know, much uglier than it is even now. Yeah. yeah. Just going back a little bit to um, how this has been going. Um, obviously, the two British ships, the British novelty ships that crash into each other is great. But <laughs> did you see the two Navy SEALs that just like fell off a ladder and now they're yeah. just like d- dead? Yeah, they just <laughs> they just like Captain Jack Sparrow kicked them off of a boat. I think the one fell off and the other one jumped in to try and get him out and then they just lost them somehow like they were that's it that was the what last the, anybody what saw the them. fuck are you guys supposed to be like the water <laughs> they guys it's the water i thought yeah. they were good at swimming like that was the whole point I, I can't yeah i so like yeah i mean if this does become broader in scope and um heats up which would be terrible for especially for a country that you know for the past near decade has experienced just one of the worst fucking human rights catastrophes on earth. Uh, one of the most brutal blockades. It would be horrible, but there would also be way more Navy SEALs just falling off ladders. <laughs> and like it, aircraft carriers running aground. Heli- heli- helicopters like trying to fly in between buildings and the rotor just falling off. Oh, the Osprey is going to get a workout. The, the, oh the Osprey God. is going to yeah, get a workout. Uh, the, the Osprey is responsible for like more widowers or more widows' pensions than like <laughs> any enemy America has had for the last twenty years. But, the Osprey, uh, the Osprey, fucking just obliterate service members. <laughs> uh, but like. Yeah. Derek, like uh, in terms of like we we always like in in the Western media, the Houthis are always described as Iran backed, and like like the, this I think is probably like the 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 biggest instigator for like a broader regional conflict because like Iran is always in the crosshairs of both like the UK and the US and Israel axis of whatever. So like we begin to see Israel is is hitting targets in southern Lebanon. Like there's just like it seems like Iran and Israel in the United States they're nibbling around the edges of like put, putting their toe up on that line. Iran is hitting, they've conducted a few airstrikes in Iraq. If I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong about that, like in, in parts of Kurdistan and they hit like, uh, I don't know, like an, an Israeli, an Israeli building in Baghdad. That was, that was their claim. It was a Mossad, uh, facility in Erbil that they, they say that they hit. Okay. But like, so, so far though, it, it seems like, how, how would you rate, the United States is like our, our appetite for directly engaging against Iran or Hezbollah. I mean, I don't think there's an appetite for this because uh, it's an election year. And the last thing that anybody in America wants is another fucking war in the Middle East, uh, especially after Biden you know, took a political hit uh, with the uh, haphazard withdrawal from Afghanistan because he felt like it would pay off, I think, for him uh, in the long run uh, and campaigned on, you know, ending open-ended commitments in the Middle East. And now we've just kind of, 
given ourselves another one, which which is uh, amazing to me. And I mean, I, I understand all the the cynical reasons why this stuff happens, but on some level, uh, when I, they announced, I think over the weekend that they were transitioning from this like immediate airstrike camp, intense airstrike campaign to something more long term, open ended basically a war i mean what you would uh under any other circumstance call a war and it, my i was just like what the fuck did they think they're doing like what did what do the people in this administration think that they're doing and that they're going to accomplish here like and and what political cost are they taking on just to shield the israelis from any uh consequences of from from massacring 25,000 people in gaza 25,000 and counting like it's it's just I I on some level I, I don't get it on some level I do I mean I know Joe Biden is uh, frighteningly pro-Israel and kind of uh, almost bloodthirsty about it he's got a record for that and I know the people around him are probably in his image and have uh, from what I understand defer to him quite a bit which is amazing given. Brett, uh, what Brett we know McGurk, Mister the State Middle of East, is a land of contrasts. Is uh, Brett has, McGurk is? Yeah. I mean, and it's he's not just Biden's guy. I mean, he's been there for four he's straight been there since presidents. The Bush four, yeah. four of the fucking w. worst presidents in U.S. history when it comes to the Middle East. He's been a top advisor on the region for all of them, and still has a job. I would Derek, say that. Did you see? Like, did you say sorry, real quick, Phyllis? Derek, did you see reports today that uh, the Biden administration is sending Director of the CIA William Burns to the region to to yeah. negotiate the outlines of what would be like a, a temporary ceasefire in exchange for the hostages? Do you read into anything anything of that? Of like a Biden attempt to like to, to to reel it back in because like at least as, from what I've observed, it doesn't seem like the CIA, uh, contrary to their history, but like it doesn't seem like the CIA is as hot for this Israel shit as is like the state department, for instance, I think that's part of it. I, I get the sense that there are elements outside of the white house, like this in the state. I mean, you, you see stories of like dissent memos at the state department, uh, you know, the Pentagon, it, you know, uh, the CIA, there, there seems to be a little bit of wariness at least, uh, more than, than you get out of the white house. Um, Burns has done this before though. They, they have used him basically as like, the real secretary of state, they send the, the dipshit Blinken out to do the public stuff, but they send Burns anywhere <laughs> and, and Burns Burns back. Yeah, to play guitar. Exactly. Um, and Burns background is as a diplomat. I mean, he got the job as a CIA director, but his background is in, is in diplomacy. They've sent him on a number of, to a number of places where they ne- don't necessarily want a lot of oversight, either public or congressional about, who they're talking to or what they're talking about. And Burns has relationships with, you know, the intelligence apparatuses in some of these countries with, uh, you know, in Egypt, for example, uh, with in Qatar, who are the, the two countries that are mediating uh, a potential ceasefire deal uh, in Israel, certainly. So he can go and talk to these people, I think kind of uh, outside of direct, uh, the direct public eye. And, and that's uh, one of the ways that they, uh, have used him quite a bit actually during during this administration. So I think it's both. I think it's partly you know putting somebody who's not uh, just like gleefully watching the casualty figures run up uh, in charge of a piece of this, and maybe the hope is that if you get a long enough ceasefire, that it can be extended and that you can get some negotiations going on a final settlement, and maybe it doesn't. You know, we don't have a return to this just. Uh, pum- punishing level of violence. 
um, and you know Burns and it, but again it, it's also I think the, the unique role that that Burns plays in in this administration with this president. I mean, obviously, like this is like worst case scenario, but like, can, can you envision like you know the, the things regardless of what America wants to do or like considers in an election year? Once you engage in military action, things take on a gravity of their own. And like, you know, it, it's horrible to think about, but like, could you sketch out like, is it conceivable in, of like a direct confrontation between either Israel and Iran or the United States? Or well, any confrontation with Iran would necessitate the involvement of the United States military, right? Um, yeah, the, I mean, there, there's no scenario I can envision where the Israel and Iran uh, somehow come to direct blows with one another and the U.S. sits it out. That's that's inconceivable. Uh, the closest, I, I, I think the closest that they've come was a few weeks ago. The Israelis uh, carried out a strike in southern Beirut uh, in the Hezbollah-controlled part of Beirut that killed uh, a senior figure in Hamas. Um, and that that was uh, extremely provocative. It was uh, crossing a, a, a pretty long-standing Hezbollah red line where they they're okay with this kind of tit for tat back and forth thing in southern Lebanon across the border. Uh, although increasingly there too, it looks like the Israelis are moving from just kind of generalized strikes to more targeted assassinations or, or targeted killings of uh, Hezbollah figures, which could escalate things. Uh, but, but attacking Beirut puts Hezbollah's credibility on, on, you know, kind of on blast. It, uh, it it's, it, it brings, it raises kind of the, uh, the stakes for Hezbollah within Lebanon, because now it's not just their uh, kind of home turf that's being attacked, but it's it's the capital. Uh, and and there was a real risk, I think, after that, that that you could have seen things escalate quite dramatically. And I think if Hezbollah gets involved in a a full blown war, that it's it's only a, a short trip from there to to Iran uh, coming in as well. Going back to uh Yemen a little bit. I think with like a, a lot of things that the Biden administration does, especially foreign policy wise, the most useful angle to see them through is just how fucking old Biden and a lot of his team are. Like they do, they sort of scan the world in a way that like suggests that we're in a permanent 1996. I think that like, a secondary reason for uh, Operation Neptune Spear or whatever is they like in their mind this is this is like a show of strength that will prevent escalation that this will somehow like impart the message to Hezbollah and Iran that like let's not let's cost. not go up another level yeah. yeah they think that like. Yeah, that it's like 1997 and it's still like a huge statement for America to send aircraft carriers to the Gulf. And it's I mean, it's particularly boneheaded when it doesn't work like they're still attacking ships. They're not they haven't changed right. anything. They, they've expanded. If anything, they've expanded the the the, the missile strikes like or the, the rocket attacks. Like how how much of a show of strength is it when you bomb these places and the, the, the people you're trying to bomb just say, yeah, whatever, we don't care. We're going to keep, keep doing what we're doing. Um, it's, and that, that to me, that's another thing that, that's just baffling to me in an election year that you would, uh, open yourself up to this, to, to being accused of, 
weakness, but I guess they already did that. I mean, they let Net- Netanyahu uh, tell Biden to go fuck himself at least twice a week now and do nothing about it. Uh, and so, I, you know, I don't know. It just it, it seems to me in a campaign year, it is bad to make the incumbent who's running for reelection look like he's just getting kicked around constantly by everybody, in particular, the leader of our best good friend in uh, in the Middle East. Did you see that Biden? Um, he said Netanyahu is my friend, but he needs to change. <laughs> like, are, are you guys, like, are you, are, are, are you guys fucking, are you guys dating? He signed, he signed my yearbook. He said, have a great about? summer and did a smiley face, but I felt it was a little bit half-hearted. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Like, it's just like, are you like, can you at least like try to take this seriously? This just being the president at all. Seriously. But yeah, uh, no, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. It's an incredibly like, antiquated foreign policy shot like it it it, it seems to like it seems to operate on the late 90s principle that like there's only one superpower around and it's us but this isn't even i mean it it goes beyond and i mean you guys have talked about this It, it goes even beyond what past presidents have done like ronald reagan say what you want about ronald reagan he he used to yell at these guys i mean he you know we, we, he went to big he called big on the phone and said knock this shit off when they were in lebanon a- and he would never have taken poppy bush would never have taken this level of just outright abuse from an israeli prime minister that biden is taking over and over again and just not won't even say anything let alone take any substantive steps like saying uh, okay, well, if you're going to insist on continuing to m- the mass killing and you're going to insist that uh, there's no possibility of Palestinian state, like you're not even going to give us the fig leaf of like, yeah, here's some, you know, jerk off bullshit progress toward Palestinian statehood, which would be, uh, you know, bullshit, but would, would at least give some cover to the U.S. and Europeans to say, you know, look, we've achieved something out of this. If you're not even going to do that, then fuck off. Like we don't we don't need to be doing this. You know, call us when you're ready to get serious, but he won't do that. He just won't uh, he you know, won't like, even uh, like uh, had, uh, defend himself. It's like uh, when we had Ryan Grimm on and we were talking about like these state department briefings where they have to like answer questions from journalists. It's like the repeated invocation of these conversations they keep happening about specific incidents, these frank candid and often sometimes difficult conversations and like and i saw i saw a journalist today ask them like have you tried anything other than conversations or is it just is it only, is it just- uh, we have raised those things publicly from up here uh but we also have raised those pi- privately in the around the clock active conversations that we continue to have with our israeli interlocutors and we'll continue to do so let me ask it this way is the u.s considering anything other than conversation as a tool to affect change in israeli in, in israel's behavior in this i have no uh new policy or, or new assessment to offer uh but uh we'll continue to have our conversations with the israeli government and uh we'll continue to work at this as is there any act like is there any action you could do to compel the Israelis to change their behavior other than uh, just picking them up, calling them on the phone, going, hey, how you doing? You know, sort of lying on the bed, belly down, kicking your legs. It is some of the, the I don't I, I don't usually watch these things, but some of the like press briefings at the State Department have been fascinating because even some of the reporters seem to be getting fed up with this. And, and you know, they keep pressing like 
you know, well, there was a video that the video of the guy waving a white flag who got sniped. Uh, you know, are you going to talk to the Israelis about this? And the response is like, well, I've only just seen the video and we don't want to draw any conclusions about what might or might not have happened. So let's not get out in front of like, God damn, grow a fucking spine. What is going on here? It is insane. Like they don't even like him. They fucking hate Biden. Yeah, <laughs> they, 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 they are going to go. Him. They will go out of their way for Trump to get Trump. Netanyahu is openly like rooting for Trump to win the fucking election, and you're still letting him dictate to you what can and can't be done here. That does make me think that like Biden's Zion. I think like everything else in Biden's like a uh, foreign policy tool toolkit is. You know, it's a mix of like shitty Democrat post 9-11 thinking about appearing tough, uh, late 90s end of history assumptions about the, the enduring prestige of the American military. But I think that it makes me think that Biden's Zionism is 100 percent from the heart, like that he he is an actual insane ideologue on this. I mean, when Reagan was telling Megan to fuck off. Biden was telling him kill as many kids yeah. as you oh, need. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd kill everybody. I'd kill the children. I'd kill everybody. Jesus Christ! Yeah, it may be one of those things that he legitimately believes, and he's he doesn't care that they hate him. Right, right. I mean, I think there's a fantasy uh, still in the the foreign policy establishment and within this administration, particularly that at some point, if you're nice enough to the Israelis and indulgent enough. Uh, Netanyahu will no longer be there, and and you'll have a a more reasonable government led by somebody yeah, who's only ben like Gavir a half of a right wing nut. You'll have like Benny Gantz. That the hope is for somebody like Benny Gantz, who's still a nut, but you know we can maybe work with him a little bit more. Um, but yeah, you're. I mean, you know, right now the fact of the matter is that you have Ben Gvir and. Betzalel Smotrich and you know those are the guys to whom Netanyahu is beholden they're the ones who are dictating to him and then he's dictating to the United States it's it's uh the fantasy world that they want to live in is not the world that they're actually living in and I don't you know, think they've managed to to figure that out you know Derek Felix has said it on the show many times before but I do think that there is a 4D chess masterstroke in which through careful diplomacy and leverage we can put the good morning party back in charge of Israel <laughs> <laughs> that is that that may be it. Biden is old enough to remember like Ashkenazi dominated Israeli politics, the autumn years of good morning in Israel. And yeah, no, he could maybe he is anticipating a return to power uh led by <laughs> Ashkenazi Jews who grew up on kibbutzes and are even older than him. I just I keep imagining him every time. Like every time there's an atrocity, like the other day, or I guess it was yesterday when they, uh, the Israelis uh, bombed a, a UN shelter, shelled a UN shelter. I keep imagining Biden, like seeing these stories come po- come past him on the the TV and being like, "Get gold in my ear on the phone now!" <laughs> like, just having a complete breakdown of like t- a linear time. Oh, what they did to those Olympic athletes! We got We got to punish them for that. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, we, we said this would be like uh, sort of a uh, wider conflict uh, around the world. Uh, but I want to I, I do want to briefly before we end, I want to move uh, from Yemen and the Red Sea to the Horn of Africa and particularly um, 
Ethiopia and Somalia, but also further into the country, uh, Sudan as well. I guess let's begin with the Sudan because some pretty horrific violence has broken out there in the capital city. This is like, a as the best I understand it, a schism between the two two factions of the military uh, in, in Sudan. Derek, could you describe what's going on in Sudan right now? Yeah, so, um, I mean, Sudan um, has had a, a, a couple of coups over the past several years. They wound up with uh, essentially a security state junta running the country. And the security state in Sudan, you can... Uh, split as certainly now you can into uh, the regular military and what's called the rapid support forces. The rapid support forces uh, are uh, based on uh, the Janjaweed militias, the, the really psycho Arabs who carried out the Darfur genocide. A portion of that kind of paramilitary was, was professionalized quote unquote and brought into the, the Sudanese state apparatus as, as this rapid support forces group. Uh, the the two leaders of those uh, factions, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, uh, who was the commander-in-chief of the Sudanese military, and Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, who's the head of the RSF, had been serving as like the number one and number two guys in the junta. Um, they came to blows uh, back in April. It had been building for a little while. They had been disagreeing about the transition, about uh, whether the RSF would eventually come under the military or, or remain its own separate thing and how to go about kind of putting at least a notionally civilian government back in charge. Uh, and so they went to war with each other, uh, essentially. And it's been going on ever since. It's one of these conflicts where, um, you know, when, when people start talking about the death toll in Ukraine versus the death toll in Gaza and like comparing uh, how violent Gaza has been. I'm always a little bit hesitant because there are places in the world where we just don't know how bad it's gotten. And Sudan is one of those. Ethiopia is another one. Uh, but Sudan is one of those. We know most of what we know about uh, the, the toll that it's taken on civilians comes from Khartoum, the capital, where a lot of the heaviest fighting has been concentrated because there are, you know, both sides have uh, bases in that region. But uh, we know that there's been just catastrophic violence in Darfur as well that gets less attention because it's less it's it's harder to uh, kind of get in there and report on it. We know that the RSF has killed uh, thousands of people in Darfur. How many is is still up in the air? The conflict is mostly. I mean, the RSF is winning. They're they're taking they've taken the whole Darfur region. They've taken most of the Khartoum region, which is sort of three cities around the the confluence of the Nile rivers. And they've taken Wad Madani, which is the main city in kind of the, the south of the capital area, um, which had been a, a humanitarian hub and is no longer the case because uh, because the RSF moved in. And the, the military seems to be very much uh, on the back foot. The RSF, RSF fighters are, are more effective. Uh, the military has certain advantages in terms of air power and armor, but the RSF has taken a, a number of bases and they've been able to, to repurpose the armor uh, that they found there. And they are almost certainly getting outside help from the UAE in the form of military equipment and especially drones, which have given them their own air capability. And, and you, as the conflict has gone on, the RSF seems to be getting more and more effective. And I think part of that is because of the, the outside support they're getting. But right now it's, it's very much, you know, they have, uh, they have taken a, a big swath of territory and the military is, 
uh, sort of struggling to to figure out what to do. And like, yeah, to, to reiterate, the RSF is the sort of semi-professionalized outgrowth of the Janjaweed, the Arab militias who did the Darfur genocide. Are they just essentially like, are they, are they, are they seeking to just continue this project of, I mean, like how would you describe it? Like ethnically cleansing, I mean, uh, the people that they've killed in Darfur have been uh, from the the not the same communities that suffered the worst in in the genocide. The the Masalit and and other non Arab uh, peoples in Darfur who who were the targets of the Janjaweed. So yes, I mean they are continuing that violence in in many respects. Now the U.S. the U.S. military has quite a significant presence in the Horn of Africa. Like what is like, you know, we've talked about like state department policy vis-a-vis like Israel and other parts of the Middle East, but like, do, do, do we have like, is there a U.S. government policy or like statement or like, or action being undertaken uh, as it regards Sudan? Uh, it's mostly been limited to sanctions. Um, and, and they've been pretty even handed sanctions. The, the U S uh, the Biden administration has sanctioned. Uh, it seems like every time, they introduce a new set of, of, you know, kind of new additions to their Sudan blacklist. They try to do it uh, with, you know, an equal number of entries from uh, companies or individuals that are, you know, supposedly supporting the military and companies and individuals that are supposedly supporting the RSF. So they haven't taken a firm position one way or the other on this conflict. And I think uh, the public position has all along been uh, that, there needs to be a civilian government that the, the junta itself was, was illegitimate. So that, that applies to both parts of it. Uh, I suspect if they had to pick, uh, they would probably go with the military because there's a little bit more legitimacy, uh, lined up with the military. Although that's dicey too, because there's some indication that Burhan is, is engaging with, uh, Islamist factions that were loyal to Omar al-Bashir, the, the previous president uh, slash dictator of Sudan. So maybe he's not uh, you know, on Washington's nice list anymore. I don't know. Um, I, but you know, you're kind of stuck either way because you know, as, again, you've got genocidaires basically on the other side with the RSF. So uh, who, do you, who do you pick there? And what about like in, in the region, like in the, in the, the Horn and like northern parts of Africa, like how do how do neighboring countries like uh, like what, what is their what are what are neighboring African countries like? Uh, did, did they regard the instability or the you know war crimes happening in Sudan as a problem? So, it, I mean, this kind of started to break out early on with uh, Egypt supporting the Sudanese military I and mean, the Egyptian military and the Sudanese military have longstanding connections. Um, I, I don't know that that's been a particularly useful or viable uh, source of support for the, the Sudanese military. Um, the governments of South Sudan and uh, a few other governments in the region have been trying to mediate a settlement. There's the, uh, a regional bloc called the uh, Intergovernmental Authority on Development that has been trying to organize peace talks. Uh, Burhan and the military have like cut them off basically because I guess they started to uh, warm up to to Degalo and the RSF probably again uh, with the encouragement of the UAE that's the the general feeling anyway um, the government such as it is in Chad uh, which is another junta is uh, I think at least tacitly supporting the RSF because the they've been the conduit for this UAE or alleged UAE aid to get into Sudan and get to the, the RSF. So 
uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a little bit of involvement. Uh, the the bulk of it has been uh, trying to end the conflict, but but there is you know certainly there's some some taking of sides going on. To move over to uh, Ethiopia and Somalia, uh, tensions there rising. You know, talk about like a, probably maybe even a greater chance for like regional instability if two countries in the region actually go to war with each other. But Ethiopia and Somalia are at each other's throats right now, based on. Ethiopia's leasing of a port from the breakaway part of Somali, Somali land, because Ethiopia is a landlocked country that has leased a port from the breakaway part of Somalia that has caused the Somalian government to get uh, quite, uh, quite angry. Yeah. So uh, Ethiopia came out of a, a war between the federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which used to be kind of head of the, uh, the ruling elite uh, apparatus in Sudan. Um, that was incredibly violent, not just in terms of uh, people killed in combat incidents, but in terms of uh, the starvation that that hit the Tigray region, which was under blockade. Still, you know, you could argue is is under some degree of blockade. Uh, that's this is another place where we just don't know how many people were killed, and it's it's uh, we know there were a lot, uh, but it's hard to get any uh, hard, you know firm information out. After the the war was settled and the prime minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, has been kind of trying to consolidate, I think, his position, he's made the acquisition of a Red Sea port a big deal. Like, you know, he says it's uh, essential for Ethiopia to have a Red Sea port. Uh, it's necessary for the, the future of the country. And this has raised a lot of concerns that he's just going to go take one. And the obvious place to do that would be Eritrea. Uh, and another war with Eritrea, which has you know happened uh, in the past. Uh, so there's there was a lot of concern that that he might be kind of working his working himself up uh, for another conflict. He's insisted that there are peaceful ways to to achieve this, that it doesn't necessarily have to be through war. And so uh, on January first, uh, his government and the uh, unrecognized government of Somaliland, which is this, as you say, breakaway region of Somalia announced a deal where Ethiopia is leasing uh, part of the uh, territory around uh, the port city of Berbera, uh, which could be used for a naval base. Uh, it's unclear whether there would be commercial activity as well, uh, but certainly they want it for military applications. Uh, the deal, the, mem the memo that they signed, the memor memorandum of understanding, includes some possibility, you know, as things progress, that Ethiopia might become the first country to recognize Somaliland's independence. So all of this has been obviously a big red flag for the government of Somalia, which doesn't want Somaliland's independence to be recognized uh, and feels that, you know, it, it, it's inappropriate for that breakaway government to be negotiating lease deals on parts of its territory. And so you've had uh, a kind of a war of words between these two countries. You've had uh, in one instance, an Ethiopian plane that was carrying officials uh, to Somaliland for a meeting was turned back, was forced to leave Somali airspace when the, the Somali Civil Aviation Authority said, you don't have permission to, to be here. That was a very tense moment. Um, the president of uh, Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, has visited Egypt. He's visited Qatar uh, and trying to, it seems to be trying to drum up support. He, he got a lot of uh, at least rhetorical support from from the Egyptian leader Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, I don't know how his trip to Qatar went, but he seems to be drumming up support in the possibility, you know, for the for the possibility of uh, of a conflict. Which isn't to say that one will happen, but there's definitely like 
a fault line here that that is of great concern, I would think. And I guess finally, uh, you know, as long as we're talking about the the world of war, I think it bears mentioning uh, the Ukraine and Russia war. And now, like the what? I'm sorry. Is that is that still a thing? Are we doing that? What's going on? I want to say is like, you know, like you're you're treated to like a daily barrage of like atrocity coming out of uh, Palestine. And like, you know, it's it's hard to take on. But I swear to God, like, I don't think anything has depressed me as much recently as reading about like the toll that this war has taken on Ukraine in terms of just like the the mass conscription that's going on right now of just basically kidnapping drunks and sending them to the front lines to die it is unbelievably grim and like it does not look like things are getting better um no i mean it's it's you know i know people uh, i've seen people get angry if you call this a stalemate and i i can understand that argument because it's probably not going to stay like this uh but it's a, it's a frozen conflict right now and one where a lot of people are dying on the front lines as, as the, these two armies kind of pound each other with artillery and, you know, occasionally try to grab, uh, you know, two square feet of territory and, you know, lose 75 people doing it. Um, it's it, it's it's a frozen mostly in place. It's not going to stay that way because ultimately, you know, the longer this goes and, and it, the longer it stays an, an artillery war uh, and a war of like grinding manpower down russia is has all the advantages in a conflict like that over ukraine especially when uh you know it seems like a lot of the funding that ukraine has been getting from the west is drying up under tense political situations especially from the u.s uh and so yeah it's it's um it's not pretty from the ukrainian perspective and i think you will look back it's very likely we will look back at some point and say you know gosh if only they hadn't thrown all those resources into the counteroffensive that didn't work. If only they had, you know, uh, adopted a more defensive posture earlier on. Uh, if only the Western aid had been more focused on things like air defense and less focused on things like Abrams tanks, which accomplished, you know, do nothing for them uh, in terms of, I mean, you know, they're helpful if you want to attack something, but not so great if you're, you know, trying to set up to, to protect your cities from, uh, missile strikes. So yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot of kind of uh, looking back and, and thinking uh, different choices should have been made. But like, do we even have like, I mean, you talk about like how hard it is sometimes to like know about how many people have died, but like, do we, do we know how many Ukrainians have died fighting this war? I'm sure they have like military age men who have been just sort of pressed into service or volunteered. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have that figure off the top of my head. I think we have a better idea certainly in, in Ukraine of how many Ukrainians have died, although you're re- relying on the Ukrainian government, which may have uh, the incentive to downplay uh, the number of casualties. Um, we don't have a great sense of how many Russians have been killed because you get these estimates from uh Western governments and and think tanks that are uh yeah seven billion Russians have been killed uh, in you know two years of war in Ukraine and it's just absurd and you know if you, you the, the 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 casualty figures that get thrown around for Russian losses are such that if they were true the Russian military would just be shattered uh, it would be unable to function so we know they're not uh, particularly accurate. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I think we certainly have better information about Ukrainian losses than we have in, you know, Ethiopia or Sudan. And I would say that's because 
uh, we Westerners care more about what's happening in Ukraine than about what's happening in Ethiopia and Sudan. Well, it's a it's it's a grim tour around the world. But before we go and like talking about like all of these horrible grinding conflicts and all the people who have died in them, things that I take seriously and are worth talking about, I'd like to talk about one potential conflict that I think will be a source of great amusement in the coming months and years, and one I don't take seriously at all. I'm referring to the coming U.S. civil war. Civil War Part Two, people. <laughs> Greg Greg Abbott's kicking it off. They're putting oh, yeah. barbed wire. Hell the yeah. Supreme Court said they couldn't put that barbed wire there. Uh, yeah, he's and putting they did the barbed it wire anyway. there. They did it. They did it. The norms. National, My God, the, the norms. The na- National Guard units from all over the United States have mobilized. They're heading to the border to protect our country and fight the federal government. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, a. Uh, it's good to know we can just ignore the Supreme Court when we want. I'm sure uh, I'm sure everyone will get that lesson and we can move on from ever caring about this bullshit again. But like this is just more trucker convoy stuff. This this is this is this is this is real. This is Trump reelection theater. This is this is bullshit. Um, it, it, it the the whole immigration thing is is Trump reelection theater. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell just said yesterday or today that uh, they're not even going to try to do a border security deal now which is all wrapped up in the ukraine funding and even like a a a big chunk of emergency funding for israel that they they can't do it because trump doesn't want them to because he wants to be able to run on immigration so uh they're stuck but it's it is uh, it's always amazing to me that the the imbalance between the party that wants to everybody to like you know cover their eyes and ears and sing la 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 the the system works like the institutions are good uh, the Democrats versus the Republicans who feel perfectly comfortable just saying fuck you to the Supreme Court and are always right. You can get away with it. You can always get away with it because there's the, the asymmetry there is uh, astonishing. And the, the Democrats will not challenge uh, will not challenge you for doing that. Uh, the best I can hope that will come out of uh, the American Civil War, too, is that like Ken Burns will still be around when it's over and we can get a PBS Civil War Part Two. But instead of like, you know, having actors read these heartfelt letters home like my dearest annabelle if we do not meet again may my let my pardon breath blow a kiss in your direction uh but instead of instead of getting stuff like that we'll just get like angry uh car videos from guys wearing oakley's no and we can we i think we need somebody to read like truth social posts from trump yeah uh that'll be the <laughs> morgan freeman be the, the, the love letters yeah morgan freeman would be good sure all right well let's uh, let's let's leave it there for today Derek Davison, once again, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, if you want more Derek, foreign exchanges on Substack, American Prestige is the podcast. You, you should know where to find them by now. But if, if you're some kind of fucking moron, they'll be in the show description. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. I, I love coming on here because uh, I, I can uh, curse and I, I don't get to do that on my own newsletter. So uh, I always appreciate that. Well, I hope you liked it because this is well, the last month of cursing on this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new, it's a new regime starting in February. <laughs> I actually did drop a a, a fuck in uh, the newsletter the other night, and I felt like I had to apologize for it. I'm like, I I, I, I try not to, you know, I try to keep this family newsletter, but uh, yeah, it was uh, just got to me. It happens. <laughs> Potty mouth can happen to the best of us, even Derek Davison. All right, gang, until next time, we will see you later. Bye bye. Get onto the bus that's gonna take you.